one of the things I enjoyed was it was like playing chess <laughs> with the beavers because we would do something and they would do something else. And then I have to go back and adjust and back and forth, back and forth. And, uh, you know, that was part of the learning process. And I also really like that every site is unique. And so, you know, really figuring out what's best for each particular situation, which is fun. You know, it doesn't get boring. Hello and welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by The Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each episode, we bring you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to restore our rivers and create resilient landscapes. And we also explore the state of nature in the UK and how beavers can help the climate and biodiversity crises while speaking to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. In this series, we're looking at what it really means to live with beavers and exploring the situations and solutions when beaver management is necessary. Today, we're speaking with the president of the Beaver Institute in the USA, Mike Callahan, to find out what we can learn from our colleagues across the pond. Eva, Series 5, how do you feel? <laughs> Excited to be back. It's going, Good. it's going to be a great series. We've got some incredible guests and it's very fun to be recording again. It is. And I feel like the whole beaver management mitigation thing is something that we've been wanting to do for ages and ages. So it feels really good to finally have it on the table. Definitely. It's a complex subject and one that will be very um, good to get experts to share their mm. experience on. Totally. So, but how are you, how are you doing? Oh, uh, well, I'm very well, thanks. Been a bit all over the place uh, the last few months. I've been touring Britain for various reasons. And I had the most amazing experience last week where I was walking, as you do, in a, in a tidal pool in Jersey. Never Ooh, been lovely. to Jersey before, the Channel Islands, highly recommend. And this black stuff was hanging in the water. Like It was like really hard to describe, but I thought it was dog fur, you know, really black dog fur hanging in a tidal pool a mile out from the, uh, from the shore. And then suddenly I saw this, this sort of electric movement. It was so fast, just dash in front of me and then create more of this black stuff and it was a cuttlefish inking me oh, inking at amazing. me not winking inking, inking. At you. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cool and then the, the ink just hung in the water for ages the cuttlefish nowhere to be found oh that is amazing it was what it was experience. really really cool it felt a bit sort of finding nemo um in a, in yes. a way um anyway yeah so so since series four, your uh, your year could be summarised as sort of travel and exploring. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, with the with the old cuttlefish and many a public old... transport mishap. <laughs> Plenty of those to be found. Yeah. Um, How about you? Oh, really, really busy year with Beaver Trust. So much going on and at home. But um, yeah, had a very good year. And one of the highlights was going to visit one of the beaver holding facilities actually oh, where wow. i was tail splashed by a beaver oh right my in gosh the face. what an intimate experience <laughs> it was amazing it was amazing i mean i you know mixed emotions about it because what it really meant was that the beaver was frightened probably mm. um but we have to hold them in um facilities while before translocation yep uh, or during translocation to a new site, which we'll hear about during the series. Mm -hmm. um, and they are incredible places and the animal welfare is 
very high and it was really fascinating to see it and sort of put that piece of the jigsaw in place yeah um, for me wow well nothing that's a full sensory experience there it was very cool was it like shaking hands with a famous person where you don't wash your hand for ages did you just leave your place for ages let the water dry (laughs) luckily the water had recently been cleaned so i was okay (laughs) (laughs) oh that is really cool um hello listeners by the way (laughs) thanks for coming back to the lodgecast i feel like we should also catch you up on what's been happening in the more general world of beavers since we last spoke in january what's been going on eva Yes. Well, loads has been going on, as I mentioned earlier. So Beaver Trust itself has expanded. We've got two new brilliant team members um, and an awesome group of ambassadors. So Mm -hmm. we are growing. We're now 11 people. We also had the Beaver Conference back in spring, which was masterminded by you, I think, Sophie, and colleagues. Um, Uh, Very much and colleagues. (laughs) (laughs) But that was an incredible meeting. Hundreds of people came to that. And we heard from beaver experts from around the world, actually, on all sorts of different topics. And a summary report is available for anyone who would like to catch up on that on our website. So do go check that out, listeners. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff there. And you can also, if you like, um, download and have a look at the presentations that lots of amazing speakers gave. We had speakers from all over the world. And you can read what they talked about, which is pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Not far on after that, we had our team trip to Wales, which was a special one because we went to the Cause Steffi Nature Reserve and um, had a look and had a sort of glimpsed a window into where beaver, where beavers, where Wales is at with their beaver journey. They're a little bit behind England at the moment, just in terms of time, but it was really exciting to see how beavers could potentially fit into the landscape there in the not too distant future. There's all sorts of incredible habitats in Wales, as I'm sure you can imagine. And so to to see beavers on their radar and, and coming back is is very, very exciting and really good to catch up on the policy landscape there and chat with colleagues as to what's next on the horizon for Welsh beavers. Yeah, because Beaver Trust staff are all dispersed. We all work from home. Um, so we get together from time to time and it's really valuable time. I didn't get to go because I had COVID. Yeah. Thanks for that. Was... But I did get to go to our expander facilities at Rewilding Coombshead, as I mentioned before, which is where I got the tail splash. But I've seen firsthand there the importance of getting legislation sorted to allow these animals new homes. Because the longer they're held there, the, the, you know, their body condition can deteriorate. And it's really important that we keep beavers moving. Mm, Very much. Which brings us to the theme of series five. So this time around, we're looking at beaver management and how we get these beavers from one place to another and things like that and where they need intervention, why that they might need intervention and what that intervention might look like. That's too many interventions. <laughs> you could say that. And I guess as we learn to live alongside this species that has ecosystem engineering ability and is a keystone species, and it's also been absent from our countryside for centuries, it's really important, I guess, to address the times, places and situations where sharing the same space with the world's second largest rodent will not go smoothly and where the beaver won't be welcome. Yes, and this is all about land use, human conflicting with and sitting alongside and living alongside wildlife. So it's a really topical challenge in Britain right now. Mm. Um, there's farming, there's wildlife, there's climate and biodiversity crises and governments are looking at new land use frameworks. Um, the continued evolution, to put it politely, of environmental payment schemes and an urgent need to review how we adapt to climate impacts because they're getting more extreme 
um, quick, quicker and quicker. And clearly what we're doing at the moment isn't working. You only have to look at a flood event and all the mud running off the farmland to mm. see that we need interventions, we need change. Um, and beavers offer a brilliant spotlight on examining our almost ethics of land use around giving nature space. So before we go into that, let's start off by exploring ourselves some of the possible situations where beaver and land use conflict arise, just in case listeners don't, you know, have this list to hand. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the questions and and concerns that we get a fair bit with Beaver Trust is beavers coppicing and felling trees that are of sentimental and commercial value, which is a fairly valid concern. Trees are important and lovely. Yeah. And the risk is going to arise because people's gardens back right onto riverfronts. So you're going to have sort of Mrs. Miggins's apple tree in her lovely orchard that's by the stream. Mm. is at risk of be- from beavers. So that's a good example. Um, then we've got things like culverts and drains being blocked, um, yeah. crop raiding, uh, where beavers arrive next to farmland. Yeah, uh, localised flooding, breaches of dams, downstream flooding. Beavers can massively mitigate flooding, but they can also cause localised flooding as well if there's just not enough space for them to do their thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's not always flooding that affects farmland either. It's sort of burrowing into banks, mm-hmm. leaving cattle and machinery at risk of subsidence into the, you know, into their burrows. So there's, I mean, those are some examples, listeners, but there are lots of things that beavers can cause. And fundamentally, where we're starting to share a space with this impactful species, you're going to get conflict. So we need to look at how we might mitigate against that. Yeah. So we're going to be delving into that question today with a fantastic guest, um, just exploring what are our options here? and which might be the best one for each particular situation, because often these scenarios are quite context-driven, and so there might be some techniques and mitigation strategies that are really effective and others that just aren't appropriate. So we're going to be exploring all of that today. Luckily, of course, for us in Britain, um, beavers do exist in the wild across the Northern Hemisphere, so there's loads and loads of experience we can learn from in Europe and North America. Um, And we have the opportunity to build our own management plans upon decades of robust experience and expertise. Yeah, so we're going to be speaking to some individuals who have that expertise across America and Europe. It's really exciting. Um, Kind of beaver legends, in our opinion. And um, we're going to be finding out about active management methods. But actually, before we meet some of them, before we meet our guests today, how about we run through a few now? I mean, I, for one, definitely get confused. There's a lot of nuance in a few of these. So it might be, I mean, I'd love a refresher. (laughs) So perhaps if we start at the beginning, where do we start with beaver management? What happens that needs beaver management? Well, the first question I think we need to always ask is, do we need to manage the beavers? They're Mm. a wild animal and the best case scenario is that we leave them alone and we don't intervene. So that is the first step, is a conversation with someone who's got in touch to ask about the beaver, to really find out what's going on and whether or not actually they can live with that yeah yeah and that's kind of coexistence really isn't it where we sort of can both live our lives and do our things without interfacing and interrupting each other too much yes coexistence is that buzzword in beaver management beaver restoration and it's actually all about whether or not it's our relationship with nature and stepping away from control of and seeing Mm. people as part of nature and it's a really interesting subject all round but vital for beaver restoration and their return. Yeah, totally. And I mean, in terms of the things that spring to mind for me when we're talking about beaver management is that image of Roisin or someone else painting trees, putting on tree guards, fencing, practical 
things that we implement into the countryside to help achieve that coexistence. Um, I've done tree painting in Scotland with Roisin under her careful supervision. And it's not, um, you know, painting a lovely picture on the tree. It is using a very simple combination of a special glue and some sand, which you paint on and it and it goes on white and then it dries clear and it is simply disgusting, I think, for beavers if they tried to eat the tree and nibble on it. Effectively, you're creating a layer of sandpaper, so it's not oh, yeah. appealing oh, nice. for yeah. the teeth. Yeah, very much. You don't want your teeth on that. Oh, it'd be horrible. It's making my spine shiver. Yeah, it's all about excluding them. So there are measures next in the hierarchy of how you can exclude from specific things, a stand of trees or one specific one or um, fencing to keep beavers out. And then the next in- level of intervention down the hierarchy is sort of intervention on um, their actual dam creation and the habitat management. So there are flow devices, there's dam notching or even dam removal. Um, but what these, is, Sorry, what is dam notching? This is one of the ones that I get really confused about. That's... L- Basically lowering the height of the dam. So you're creating a notch in it. You remove a bit of the the top and Mm -hmm. it lowers the water level behind the dam. Okay. Of course, the beavers will probably be back the next day to build it back (laughs) up again because that's what they do. Yeah. But let's find out about that from our experts later in the series. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you've got your your translocations. Yeah. So at Beaver Trust, we are licensed to use Bavarian beaver traps to trap beavers in a landscape where they perhaps aren't so welcome and then translocate them through the various stages to an area where they are welcome and they're able to do their thing fairly peacefully. Exactly and this really is the last resort if you can't live alongside and use some of the other management techniques this is the last resort that you could remove the beaver or family of beavers as well and it has to be done under license and it is a lethal control license so then you've got the option of culling the creatures or moving them and that's where it gets really controversial and something that we also want to get into in this series because there's no point shying away from it and we don't want animals to be shot but sometimes there's a a need for their removal so it's it's really really fascinating and actually a really important part of beaver management to discuss and we hope to cover as many of these as possible across this series of the Lodgecast. And as ever, if you have any questions, please do get in touch with us. All the information is on the Beaver Trust website. So actually, shall we uh, hop to it and get on to our first beaver legend, our first guest of the series? I'm very excited. Yes, we're going to meet Mike Callahan today. He is the founder of an organisation called Beaver Solutions. And he specialises in effective beaver management and resolving human beaver conflicts. And he also actually founded a non-profit called the Beaver Institute. Basically, he's done this for ages. So there's a lot to learn from this man. Um, His organisations have created flow devices. They've created learning resources and they've delivered training, importantly, across the world to help other beaver professionals dealing with beaver management. Well, Mike, welcome to the Lodgecast. Thanks for calling all the way from the States. You've been working with beavers since 1998, so lots and lots of experience. And for listeners at home, I just want to uh, give you, set the scene. So Mike's calling with a big giant <laughs> beaver carving behind him. It's absolutely amazing. And it was done by a chainsaw, made it with a chainsaw. So we'll try and post a photo of that on the socials when we get round to it. Very welcome, Mike. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, now, Mike, your your first job as our expert today is to settle the competition between us. So 
As you know, beavers are fascinating creatures and they lend themselves to some of the most amazing questions that you may find down at your local pub quiz. And so we'd like you to pick your your favourite weirdest or most wonderful fact from myself and Eva. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. Okay, I'm going to kick off and it's one that slightly blew my mind. And I don't know if lots of people know this about if it happens with other mammals or not, but here's my fact. So when food availability is reduced, breeding is also reduced. And the litter size might be reduced when competition for food is increased. And some of the fetuses can be reabsorbed into the uterus. Like, does that happen in any other creature? I just think that's bonkers. (laughs) So resorption of embryos resulting in fewer kits per female beaver is a thing. I think that's very cool. That is cool. Incredible. That is cool. It's cool. There was a rumour going around, just a slight segue, there was a rumour going around at school where twins in the year above reabsorbed their triplet uh, in the womb, obviously. Um, So, uh, and, you know, it may have been one of those school things, but it also could be quite a legitimate mammal strategy, survival of the fittest in action, maybe. Mm. Clearly doesn't happen in humans a lot, though. <laughs> we have so many. <laughs> My fact is uh, also about beaver anatomy, and it's the fact that the anatomy of a beaver heart more closely resembles that of an aquatic mammal versus a land mammal. And it's thought that diving in a, a beaver's habit of diving is thought to be the main evolutionary pressure forcing this adaptation. Fascinating. That's yeah. a fact. I, I Thank have, you. Take <laughs> <Hate> mine. <laughs> well, <laughs> both are fascinating. I do. I'm going to go with number two, the heart, though, because I didn't know that. I had never heard that. I had uh, heard and uh, read there's been studies about the population of beavers being affected by food supply. But uh, beaver heart being related to more aquatic. That's fascinating. Yeah. Like, that's, that that's is fascinating. My... Ding, ding, ding. Oh, thanks so much. Oh, congratulations, Sophie. <laughs> Both were Very great, Very nice. Cheers. I mean, aquatic adaptations <laughs> in the beaver are impressive. They always, always win. Right. Very well done. Now, Mike, the first thing that we'd like to ask you before we get technical on beaver management is a bit about yourself. So um, you're, you've not always been a beaver expert. Is that right? In fact, so as we understand it, you left a 20-year medical career as a physician assistant to work with beavers. Can you give us a little synopsis on how that came about <laughs> and what inspired you to take that career change? Yes, I'm an accidental beaver uh, advocate. <laughs> yeah, I, I had an enjoyable career in medicine for 20 years and then only got into beavers accidentally because here in my home state of Massachusetts in New England, we had a voter referendum that restricted beaver trapping. And beavers became very uh, politicized. We, we have... Everything politicized here. So um, at any rate, my wife and I kind of stepped into that political morass uh, to say there must be some middle ground and where people can live with these animals and not get their homes flooded out or roads flooded out. Yeah, so we started a volunteer group in 1998 and it just evolved, you know, but I really loved it. And in 2000, decided to start it as a part-time business, and that rapidly grew. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. So it's nothing I could have planned, 
but I feel very blessed by it because while I enjoyed medicine, it was ni- it's nice to be outside working and, you know, do promoting healing in a different way of the planet. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel very fortunate. What a beautiful thing to summarize, actually, promoting healing in another way. Mm, I wish um, more people had that perspective. Mike, I wanted to just ask you to summarize again a little bit more about the the sort of North American experience for our listeners, because obviously it's a vastly different country to Britain. Um, I was lucky enough to be in Colorado back in May visiting my family who live out there. And for the first time ever, I saw what I excitedly WhatsApped to the Beaver Trust WhatsApp group as textbook Beaver, where we were we were in this national park and I saw the biggest lodge I'd ever seen in my life. I saw the most amazing network of dams and braided channels and reconnection to the floodplain that I'd ever seen in my life. There was a it was almost like you'd been planted there, an angler fishing just downstream. So obviously there's a lot more space in the US than there is here. But how would you summarize the picture of the beaverscape in North America at the moment, if possible? Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, well, I guess I'll go back, you know, in time a little bit. Back when European colonists first came here and there's estimated 40 to 200 million beavers in North America. And basically every stream had beavers on them. You know, except except for like the high desert and uh, maybe part of Florida where there's a lot of alligators, uh, beavers were everywhere. And they just uh, transformed the landscape, right? Because uh, instead of uh, these narrow, single-channel streams that we're used to, everything was just dammed and, you know, a myriad of waterways. But then the, you know, fur was a very valuable commodity, having been mostly been wiped out of Europe. So the early settlers just uh, started extracting beavers like crazy and basically leaving a beaver desert in their wake. And the first white pioneers were the trappers. So they moved across from east to west across the continent and removing pretty much all the beavers. And that just changed the whole landscape like crazy so that when the land was settled, we built houses and roads and things that were historic wet meadows and, and uh, wetlands. So uh, so that's kind of why we have problems now, <laughs> because we settled this land in the absence of knowing that these were historic for millennia uh, wetlands. And so in the night. 1930s or so here in New England, beavers started making a comeback because the farms that had been cleared started reverting to forests and there was an appreciation that we needed beavers. So, uh, and fur was no longer in fashion and real valuable, right? So, as beavers came back, we started having more conflicts because beavers are a lot hmm. like us. You know, they transform the landscape to suit their own needs. And, uh, when they returned to these historic streams where their ancestors had dammed, we had built things. And so that's kind of why I got involved, because I noticed that there was a lot of conflicts. And uh, so we wanted to try to resolve those. That is a, painting a perfect picture, actually, seamlessly leading, leading into the next question, which is what we the, the crux of this whole series is looking about at beaver management and techniques 
and what works and what doesn't. And in this episode, we would love for you to give us a sort of first, second, third tier look at some of the actual techniques themselves. I noted that you've sort of done webinars on things like non-lethal beaver conflict resolution. So what are the actual beaver management options that you use? Sure. Um, Well, the first priority is always tolerance. You know, when possible, leave the beavers there, let them do what they do. If it's a trail that's getting flooded, you know, move the trail. If it's minor things, you know, that we can adapt to, then that's always the first option. Um, The second option would be also to leave the beavers in place, but resolve what the conflict is, usually with what we call flow devices, uh, devices that control the water flow, allow water to continue to flow, but maintain it at a level that the beavers can survive, but we're protecting the infrastructure or farms or whatever else we're trying to protect. And so there's a variety of techniques we use there. Um, We'll use uh, specially designed plastic pipes that go through the beaver dams and will set at a level that we want to keep the water at. And they're designed in a way where there's fencing on the intake end of our pipes so the beavers can't feel or hear water going into those pipes. So they leave them alone and it creates basically a permanent leak through the dam at the level we want the water to be at. Uh, Road culverts and other man-made drainage structures are very common places for beavers to dam because beavers are smart. They'll they'll pick the spot where it's the easiest spot for them to get the biggest pond with the least amount of effort. So road culverts to beavers, probably when they swim up to them, they see the roadbed and it probably just looks like a hole in a dam to them. So with a little bit of work, plugging up a pipe, the whole roadbed becomes a, a big dam. So most of the conflicts that, we, you know, probably 60% of the work we do is related to road culverts. And those we can usually protect with fencing that will make what is an easy spot for them to dam now a lot more work. So these fences will often have perimeters of 30 or 40 feet. So they'll say, oh, it's not worth damming here. They'll pick the somewhere else upstream or downstream and leave the road culvert alone. Another device we'll use is we'll combine the pond leveler pipe that I was talking about with a small fence, or we'll just encourage the beavers to build a dam 10 feet upstream of the, of the culvert with a little rock wall or a fence. And if they have a dam in front of the pipe, the road culvert pipe, then they'll leave the culvert alone usually because they have what they want. So there's a, and there's other, other types of variations of these devices that we'll use, but they're very successful. So that would be the next tier, you know, using those devices to, uh, to control water levels, or if the issue is chewing on fencing, using a wire mesh around the base of a tree, or even you folks are using it more than we're using it here in the States, uh, electric fencing will often protect a larger area of trees if you have a whole grove you want to protect. So those are a lot of the non-lethal techniques that we'll use. Um, In my experience, here in Massachusetts, we're the third most densely populated state in the country. Really? Yeah, it's really very developed. So, But even here, about three out of four 
calls we get for problems, we can use these non-lethal techniques. But they don't work everywhere. You know, uh, sometimes we've built things in floodplains and there's just no ability for the beavers to have a pond without causing problems. So then that brings us to the next tier, which would be removing the beavers. Now, in some areas in this country, it's legal to relocate them. And so that would be obviously much better than trapping and killing them. Here on the East Coast, most states have enough beavers where that's no longer legal. They don't want people moving an animal that might cause an issue for someone else. So no, I didn't know that, that it's yeah. not, you don't move them everywhere. Yeah. So here in, in Massachusetts, for example, if we trap beavers, they have to be killed. So that's our last resort. But sometimes, unfortunately, that's what I'll have to recommend. Mm. And this is all really interesting because when I asked you my initial question and made the comment about how spacious the US is compared to Britain, and then you come in and say that actually Massachusetts is the third most densely populated state, there's actually more application then and more learnings that we could probably take more seriously as an incredibly densely populated country ourselves. Mm. So the fact that you find these techniques and these tiers to be very successful, and um, it sounds like you almost have like a, a sort of fluid routine of implementing which techniques are, are most appropriate quite rapidly. Is that right? You know, do you feel mm -hmm. like you can respond, you can be responsive and yep. act quickly when you get those calls? Yeah, if we get a call, usually... Within a couple of weeks, we can have it resolved. Usually we have a backlog, so we can't get out there right away. But let's say once we go out to a site, we'll assess it and determine what the best option is. And when the best option is using one of these devices, fortunately, we have an expedited permitting process in our state where whenever there's a threat to human health, safety, or property, we can get a permit uh, right away from the local health agent. And then we also will get that um, reviewed by the local conservation board. And so it's a local permitting process. And when it runs properly, it usually only takes a few days. There's no need for a public hearing or anything like that. They will review it, go out to the site, and then you know approve it, and we can do the work. And these devices, we can all put, it's rare that it ever takes more than a day. You know, one day we can get it in. Wow. And is the success of that, these techniques, dependent on the speed of licensing? Um, not really. Um, it's more, the speed of licensing is more an issue for the property owner, for like if a farmer wants to plant and it's all muddy and they can't, or someone's got a sump pump um, in their basement trying to keep their basement dry. Um, that's really why this expedited wetland permitting process for beavers was created so that because a beaver dam can quickly mm. change as you know the uh the situation where a stream turns into a big pond and uh so fortunately we're able to get in there and, and respond pretty quickly okay that's that's yeah really interesting to hear because i think one of the things here is that people want to know that we can act quickly because that reduces the impact and therefore, you know, it eases the potential conflict if you can do something about it in the next couple of days, basically, rather than have lengthy mm -hmm. licensing. Um, let's talk cost for a second and money. Mm -hmm. um, 
and see if you can shed some light for us on the finances of managing beavers and, and mitigating its impacts. So I saw one of the webinars that you were talking about. You, you had a study of 55 beaver conflict sites mm-hmm. and found that sites that were managed with non-lethal control methods cost the taxpayer significantly less than sites that were managed with beaver removal and provided millions of dollars of ecological services to the town that would have been True. lost if you took the beaver away. Yeah. What What are you finding in the States in terms of the costs of beaver management? Yeah, the, the upfront costs compared to trapping obviously depends on the location, right? It's going to vary from region to region and who's doing the trapping or who's doing the installation. But yeah, you're absolutely right. That, that study was... Uh, we did is over a 19-year period of these uh, 55 sites. So we really had the ability to f- um, include the replacement costs. You know, these devices usually last about 10 years on average, maybe a little longer, but they're not indefinite, right? And so um, they do eventually need to, the fencing will corrode and you need to replace that. But uh, mm-hmm. when in this particular town with these 55 sites, 12 of the sites were sites that these devices either didn't work or we didn't even try because we knew from experience they wouldn't work. And so it was it was nice because we had those 43 sites with the flow devices and 12 with the uh, trapping sites in the same town to be able to compare. And yeah, the taxpayers save money every year on the ones that we we're managing non-lethally. So that, that was kind of cool. That is very cool. Yeah. A nice mm. and amazing uh, longitudinal study as well. Yeah. Mike, is there anything over your your decades of work that has surprised you or hasn't gone to plan or some kind of big, big moments that have caused you to change direction in your journey with beavers? Hmm. Good question. Um, certainly beavers can surprise us and... I remember particularly when I first started doing this work, one of the things I enjoyed was it was like playing chess <laughs> with the beavers because we'd do something and they would do something else and then I have to go back and adjust and back and forth, back and forth. And, uh, you know, that was part of the learning process. And I also really like that every site is unique. And so mm. it's... Uh, you know, really figuring out what's best for each particular situation, which is fun. You know, it doesn't, doesn't get boring. Um, <laughs> I guess one big surprise that I've seen over the years to me has been that people who are strong advocates for salmon and other fish often are not supportive of beavers and are concerned that, for for example, that beaver dams will block salmon passage and spawning and that kind of thing. And there's been a lot of studies on the West Coast with Pacific salmon. It's shown that uh, salmonids do better, you know, with beaver dams in their streams. There's a higher survival rate, so there's more more salmon, and they get bigger faster. And it only makes sense. I mean, they've co-evolved over millions of years. And um, so to think that a beaver dam is going to prevent salmon from spawning when they were living, you know, somewhat harmoniously, I guess, for millennia, that's just our human, you know, we think we know as humans, we know so much. And then, but 
nature is so complex and it's worked out these uh, processes that are so complex over all you know eons and so i would think that hopefully as people learn this that you know beaver advocates and salmon advocates will be united in uh, trying to help both species right so that's been one thing that's been a surprise to me other than the beavers themselves <laughs> i'll just throw in a curveball <laughs> amazing to step back very briefly to the mitigation um work itself when you first visit a site or hear from a landowner who has an issue how do you go about assessing the problem and the severity of the problem and therefore allocating the best solution yeah good question what what we'll do is uh do an on-site assessment so go travel out there and, and look at what the person who called is concerned about and determine where that water needs to be to resolve that issue and make sure there are no other butters with issues that we also have to take into consideration. And then once we have an idea of, you know, what success would look like for that property owner, then we can determine whether our devices will be able to achieve that result or not. And then if we do think that um, our devices will work. For example, a pond leveler pipe through a beaver dam needs a meter of water depth. You know, so if you don't have the three feet of water, it's not submerged enough and the beavers may discover it and plug it up. So if we go out to the site and say, okay, yeah, they can have more than a meter of water here and we'll be okay, then we'll say, yeah, okay, we'll put a pipe in here. But then we'll have to assess the watershed area and determine how big of an area drains to that dam so that we can then estimate what size pipe to use because we use different size pipes depending on um, what the stream flow is. And then we'll just do a proposal to the landowner and hopefully get it approved and put it in. Just an annex to that. Have you found that's changing with climate extremes? So if you pr try and yeah. prepare a site for flood impacts is that actually being blown out now because <laughs> the, the weather's so strange? yeah yeah it's uh it's particularly this year here i suppose where you are too we are just getting so many intense storms where mm -hmm. just last week new york city was flooded like yeah. crazy mm -hmm. and uh we got we're north of that we got some of that but nowhere near as much but you know, I'm talking to uh, highway superintendents across the state. They said it's just insane. What they repair a road and it washes out again. It, so, yeah. with our work, though, it actually is giving support to uh, needing these beavers. It's a little counterintuitive because you would think beaver dams are holding water on the landscape, so it will make flooding worse. But it actually doesn't. There's been some studies, a real good one in uh, the central U.S., uh, Milwaukee area, that showed the city of Milwaukee would save millions of dollars in flood control if they just had more beaver dams upstream. And that's hmm. just because these beaver dams act as checks, you know, check dams. Each one will hold back a little bit of water, and then it tops over and continues downstream. So... Having a lot of beaver dams on the feeder streams to rivers will mm -hmm. moderate and lower peak flows and actually raise low flows in drought because these beaver dams sink water into the ground and it releases it slower. So 
wet wet times there's less flooding and dry times there's more stream flow that's one of the reasons why out west they there's a real huge interest in getting more and more beavers where they don't have as many as we have because Mm. with climate change and the precipitation pattern changes it really is uh beneficial to have Mm. you know this water storage as well as uh slowing slowing and sinking it Mm. amazing that's really interesting that there's this kind of east-west kind of potential movement of beavers. I just wanted to ask quickly, um, Mike, about when you're um, in discussion with landowners and, and property owners um, who have called you and say, hey, Mike, you know, this beaver's done this. Can you come out and see the site and come out and help? Do you find that that's, does that tend to be quite a collaborative engagement and process with the landowners? Does it really vary? Um, what's your experience on the sort of social people side of things there? The people side is, is an interesting one. You know, beavers are fairly, there's some variation in how they behave and how, how active they'll dam. But obviously with humans, there's a lot more variables. Um, (laughs) but even from the beginning of doing this work, one of the things I really liked about this work is that. I could find common ground with almost anybody, no matter what their priorities were when it comes to beavers. You know, it could be if they just want their property protected, okay, we put in a device, we'll protect your property. If they're concerned about money, well, okay, well, this is going to cost you less money living with the beavers than continuing to get rid of the beavers. If they were had real strong environmental ethos well okay well keystone species we want this this animal around to support biodiversity and all the other things that good things they do for the environment um, if there were about safety and roads you know by having devices on these road culverts we're protecting and keeping the water flowing 24 7 you know if you remove the beavers people don't know that new beavers have moved in until it's too late because they've already plugged the pipe and there's flooding and the they have safety issues. So the people part of it is just trying to understand, you know, what the person is concerned about and trying to mm. address that and, you know, taking their their concerns seriously. You know, because sometimes people think, oh, you care more about the beavers than you care about me. Right. And so it's important to develop that relationship to say we want to resolve your issues. Well, yes, we want to do it in the most ecologically sound way we can but ultimately it's your decision these are your options kind of kind of like medicine you know let them do informed consent give them the pros and the cons yeah and you know it's up to them to make the decision Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense actually because it is about being practical isn't it really Mm -hmm. lethal control is a contentious issue here in britain Mm -hmm. um for good reason uh, because and and you know the sides if there if you like to look at it like that size of the arguments are that we need the ability to remove beavers where they are where they can't be tolerated, but also we're still reintroducing the species, so it's really difficult to see numbers shot and killed. Um, mm. You are there having several decades now with established beaver numbers and heavily human populated area. What does it feel like now? Is it something that's just normal and acceptable and that's okay now because the beavers are established or how does it feel i guess it uh, varies depending on the person you talk to and what their personal values are but trapping and removing beavers actually the most 
comfortable option for most people 20 years ago because that's all they knew. And that was what was traditionally done. So it was. it's actually been a long process of trying to educate people that there are other options and, and in many cases there are better options and changing that culture. And like when I started and putting in these devices, invariably people would come up and say, oh, what are you doing? Is that a trap, a beaver trap? And now I love it because rarely do people not know what we're doing. You know, we've put in over 2,000 of these devices. <laughs> so it's... Um, People see them, you know, regularly or know about them. And so raising people's awareness is the biggest thing, just because most people, they don't want to kill animals, you know, unless they have to, right? So if you give them an option where uh, where they don't have to, you know, most people will opt that way. Thank you. That's very good to hear. Good to have that sense of what might come down the line Yeah, <laughs> for yeah. us. And, it, you know, it's mostly fear. You know, people that want to just get rid of them, they're afraid that because they don't they don't have experience with these non-lethal techniques. And so, you know, a lot of people don't believe something until they see it. And that's something we've seen, you know, over time as people see more of these devices in, they say, OK, I guess that did work. <laughs> and hmm. Uh, hmm. and then they're less likely to say, let's get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, it. Strikes me, and I guess this is from your background in medicine, and then when you you started the interview by saying how this is a, a healing job and, and a job where you're you're sort of feeling called to still heal a bit in a different way. There must be so many rewarding elements to your work. Oh, absolutely. Do you have a? I mean, this is probably an impossible question to answer, <laughs> but do you have a a moment or or a, or an encounter with a beaver, or even an encounter with with a person who perhaps has? sticks out for you? Mm. Well, one that popped in my head when I was just answering the last question was there was a highway superintendent years ago who drove by when we were putting in a device for a neighboring town. And he was friends with that highway superintendent. They started talking. And he said to me, these things will never work. And he drove away, you know, all like all self-righteous. And, <laughs> and uh about eight years later, he called and said, you know, I see these are working. I'd like uh, like you to take a look at one. And now he's a big supporter and we have like six or eight different devices in his town for him. And, uh, Whoa. you know, this is a long process, right? People don't change their minds overnight, but you start, do it in manageable steps, one step at a time, knowing that you're on the right path. And people will see that. And over time, more and more people buy into it if it really does work. Incredible. There you are. Mm. You, are you heard it here from the Beaver Management Oracle. Um, <laughs> oh <boy. laughs> it takes time. It takes time. Well, I just have one more question that I wanted to ask you, Mike, while we've got you. Sure. If you were in a room with the decision makers of Britain that decide what happens to the beavers, do you have any advice that you would be giving them? Ooh, good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would say that nature is smarter than we are, and these beavers are native, and they were performing an important ecological role well before we wiped them out, and that it's our duty and responsibility to restore what should be on our landscape. Humans should be stewards of the land, 
not extractors, and we need to live in harmony. And, and that means balancing the needs of the people and the farmers and uh, property owners with the needs of nature and all the species that depend upon what beavers do. So let's find that balance. <laughs> Great answer. Thank you. Sure. Mike, it's been fantastic to talk to you today. Thanks so much for your time. I think we're going to have to wrap there. Thank you, Mike. It's been great to speak to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. And I'm very grateful that you are uh, raising awareness across the pond. And together, you know, we'll get it done. Yes. Here's to that. Thanks so much for your time today. I really enjoyed that. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It just shows how much there is to learn. And I'd love to hear what you thought was like a shining message from him. But for, for one of them, for me, was the word tolerance. He's clearly learned all about that and the sense of what is to come when beaver populations are far more established gives me a lot of confidence, actually, in doing this in Britain that we can tolerate beavers. Yeah, I just found the whole conversation really reassuring because he seems to not only have an incredible understanding of the animal itself, but also of people. And I guess that comes with being mm. uh, from a, having a, a medicine or a background in medicine. So that gives you that instant empathy and almost that bedside manner. And it's also what Roisin is all, mm. always saying, actually, empathy. isn't it? This is about people and that's who she works with most of the time, yeah. not the beavers, actually. It's about that. And also this conversation really highlights the importance of working with our colleagues across the pond Definitely. and connecting. Yeah. I think it's something that I, it, I think it's just really excited me because I think it's it's opened the door to yeah. all these opportunities where we can have those conversations and be reminded that there are colleagues that know so much um, about systems that are actually more relevant to the UK to, to to Britain than I previously gave them credit for. With Massachusetts being so populated, Completely. I just assumed oh, you know, it's easy to think that. You can't compare Britain's story to America's because they're utterly different countries. But actually, it seems like we're dealing with exactly the same issues. And so I take a lot of comfort that we can lean on people who've got that experience and have have been through the rounds, really, of, of, of all the different scenarios so that we can hit the ground running, hopefully, when the time comes. Yeah, it's humans alongside natural systems. And that was a, it was a very energising conversation. It was. So, Eva... Are you ready for the quiz? First quiz of the series. Excellent. I'm glad you're, I'm ready. Glad you're pumped. Um, <laughs> Always. <laughs> so uh, this, I'm actually really looking forward to this, not going to lie. The name, oh, well, I've called this quiz Who Done It? Or one okay. word, Who Done It? Oh, amazing. And the quiz will go as follows. I am going to give you some anatomical veterinary level evidence of predation on beavers as seen in the field but who was the predator okay because as we know beavers have natural predators not in britain but in areas of north america and scandinavia and bavaria where they still have their predator networks they are predated on and it's important for us to remember that okay, okay. beavers are most vulnerable to predation when away from the water just bear that in mind so question one, the evidence of attack here are puncture wounds. Was it A, made by a mole, B, a European badger, or C, a Eurasian lynx? Which of those animals made puncture wounds on the beaver? 
a mole, a badger, or a lynx? I'd just like to mention that I'm really glad it's multiple choice. Um, but beyond that, I think it's probably oh, a lynx. Incorrect. It was the it badger. It was the badger yeah. that made puncture wounds on our on our little old beaver. Badgers are vicious. As I've I could go into a chicken anecdote here, but I won't bore oh, our go listeners. Go on, yes, please. Qu- quick chicken. <laughs> oh, quick chicken anecdote. I mean, badgers they they are vicious. So I had uh, my chickens in the rear garden of a standard Bristol townhouse once, and badgers came in and apps the the lawn looked like the Somme, and they ripped <laughs> the back off. <gasps> off um the chicken house oh. they just ripped it clean off and just destroyed there were chickens everywhere oh they were uh, they're horrible they're vicious oh my god and they yeah very destructive they are well they, they have they have i mean if you've ever seen a badger's teeth you don't want to go anywhere near them they know what they're doing yeah. and their claws obviously for digging not just digging yeah. the earth yeah amazing um but um yeah i can i can easily imagine that yeah poor beaver yeah poor beaver uh right question two they found evidence of the attacks via the stomach of the predator, but also, basically it was a mess. <laughs> there were evidence of things going on with stomachs and there was a carcass. It was all a bit of a mess. Was it A, made by a wolverine, B, a grey wolf, or C, a bobcat? Oh, man, that's amazing. I think it's probably a wolverine. Yes. I love wolves. Excellent. <laughs> One point. Woo, got my Wolverine right. is a, a messy Easter by the sounds of it. Yeah. Uh, poor oh, old beaver. Bloodbath. Yeah. That sounds quite sad. Nature is nature. Uh, question Indeed. three. The evidence of the attack on beavers. We're trying to find out what was the predator. The evidence that the scientists saw were dugout dens. So beaver dens that were just dug out, inside out. But also there was records of observations of attacks happening. So people observed an attack happening and said, oh my gosh, this animal is attacking a beaver. Was it A, a black bear, B, a Eurasian otter, or C, a dog? Oh, that's tricky. I was going to, when you first said dug out burrows, I was going to say a bear, but I think it's probably a dog. Correct. A dog is correct. C, you got two out of three there, Eva. Well done. What a fascinating quiz. I'm quite intrigued by that. There's lots of interesting information there. I think it's probably worth also correcting that there are, in fact, predators in Mm -hmm. Britain as well. The otter will take a beaver kit, so just in case. This is true. We Mm. aren't completely bereft of all our predators by any means. No. But sadly, no bears or wolves. Mm -hmm. Watch this face. (laughs) Well, there you go. So that's it for this episode of the Lodgecast. Yes, but don't worry, we'll be back again next week as we'll be joined by Yitka Ulikova from the Nature Conservation Agency of the Czech Republic to unpack what happens with beavers in mainland Europe. Please make sure you've subscribed to the Lodgecast on your podcast platform of choice because it does make a huge difference to us. And while you're there, be sure to leave us a glowing review. Yes, please. And for more from Beaver Trust, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Beaver Trust or head over to our website, beavertrust.org and sign up for our free email newsletter. See you next time. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Brisdian for Beaver Trust.